You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. All right, well, welcome back, man. I'm so uh, so looking forward to this conversation. We are joined by Rich Gravelin, and Rich is the director of B2B Strategic Alliances at Harvard Business Publishing. And so if you're familiar with Harvard Business Review, as I absolutely love the work they do, that is one piece of the work that Rich and his team work on. But Rich, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to be here, Mark. As I've told you before, I've read your book multiple times. I love it. So I'm really glad to be here. I'm excited to spend some time with you and your, your audience. Well, thank you, for, thank you for the compliment. Thank you for checking out the book. I definitely appreciate that. Rich, let's talk a little bit. What I, what I typically like to do is just start off by learning about the guest and their background and what got them into the seat that they are in today, this partnering seat. If you wouldn't mind, can you just uh, briefly run through your history so we have an idea of, uh, of your professional career? Yeah, thanks. So I've, uh, my career has been pretty varied, but mostly around the, the sales and marketing world. And so I started out my career in direct sales. And then about 20 years ago, I cut my teeth in the channel by working with, some, uh, with an organization that was a small Israeli software company since acquired by Oracle. But it was there that I learned how to work from, the, you know, from a, a place of little resource to try to, to help work with large organizations that perhaps have more leverage and resources. And it was a really great learning experience for me at that time, 20 years back, to understand how to, how to work you know, in, in a world that we are in today where you know, we try to do more with less, right? So that's where it began that. Um, I spent some time in grad school after that, really getting into the publishing world. And for the last 16 years almost, I have worked at Harvard Business Publishing in a variety of roles, both in direct sales leadership and in the last couple of years, both in the the channel and the alliances world that we have in the B2B side of our business. So Rich, um, Harvard Business Publishing, whenever, we, whenever we're talking sales and partnerships in this world, what does that mean for you? How do you leverage the power of partnership and what's, what's the partnership work that you do specifically? Yeah, so it's pretty varied. In the B2B world, we have two primary categories. So we have the, the more relationships where we're trying to create integration. So for those, those individuals who may know more about us, we, in addition to having HBR uh, content, we also produce courseware and ideas and programs for companies of all sizes around the world. Uh, and so what we're doing with that content is, um, you know, as we're helping to build leaders, uh, we realize that sometimes our clients are saying, we want to build leaders, yes, with your content, but we want to make sure it's accessible through other channels like other platforms. And so... So there's one side of what we do, which is partnering with those companies to help get our integrations done. But then the channel side, we're also building channels where we're looking primarily to help build out the long tail for B2B for us. Um, as a small nonprofit part of the university, we're not able to necessarily you know, go off and, and raise a bunch of capital and hire a bunch of people. And so a way for us to extend our scale is to work in the channel instead. That's what we're doing. So Rich, um, you have traditionally had that direct sales team right and so mm. didn't you just fairly recently stand up a team to you know do this leverage the power of partnership and figure out how to partner to extend your your team's reach yeah that's a, that's a good point mark yeah so we are doing exactly that so um as, as you can imagine it's uh the, the harvard business brand of course is a very strong brand and so we have a lot of or, a lot of organizations that want to work with the brand and so we have to be really careful about who with whom that we, we partner with, right? So we do have a team we've stood up in the last year 
that helps us both um, identify and then assess which organizations are best for us to work with. Uh, where can we provide value for our clients in a mutual manner, right? Um, so yes, we are, we're just kicking that off right now in the last few months. And so whenever we're talking about uh, from a sales side, sales partnerships, typically we, we think about referral partnerships and we talk about channel partnerships. And uh, we spend a little bit of time trying to, to distinguish with these two tools, what these two levers are. I'd love for you to just chat with us for a couple minutes about, um, you know, do you offer these two types of approaches uh, for your organization? And then just as a leader that's standing up this program, how do you think about those two different levers? Yeah, it's a great question. We do have both. You know, for a long time, we were working exclusively on the referral side. But when we think about setting up a channel in the last you know, year or so, it's been much more about how do we generate revenue with those channel partners. Um, and so it's less about referrals and more about resale at that point, uh, which is for us, you know, relatively new. We, we did this many years ago in the B2B side of HBP in the publishing company. And we, we got away from that for a while. We were working just exclusively with a direct channel. And so now that we're going back in, you know, there, there are a lot of things that have to happen inside the company, right? We have to be able to change the culture for people to recognize that um, we can work side by side, the channel and the direct, right? Um, so uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but <laughs> there's, uh, you know, the, the, the referral side helps us, I think, just to sort of open some doors, but the resale side really is where we're going to drive some revenue for the business and, and help us to grow. So Rich, from a, I guess from a contractual perspective or a program or a compensation perspective, you know, what are the differences without getting into the specifics, but what are the differences or how do you structure programs? I'm assuming that you're like most other organizations where you have a particular uh, referral partnering program and it has certain parameters. And then you have the channel, which may have different terms and conditions and in, in economics of it. Yeah, certainly. Um, so from an economic standpoint, we are we offer, you know, higher points, of course, on the resale side. Um, but we're expecting a bit of a different outcome, right? So with referral partnerships, these are companies that are, you know, they may be in a conversation with a, one of their clients and it, it makes sense for them if someone says, hey, you know, who can help us develop our leaders? It might make sense for them to be able to, to refer those back to us, in which case um, we tend to not usually have a, you know, a big economic output because we're, we're, what we're hoping for, of course, in that case is that uh, the referral helps us to sell directly and create a relationship with that client, you know, one-to-one. On the resale side, again, especially in the long tail, um, we obviously are offering more economic value for our partners, but there's an expectation, of course, that those partners are going to be spending more time developing opportunities themselves so that they're going to go out there, create marketing programs, have salespeople who are making calls on behalf of what we do. Um, so we, we give more and expect more at the same time. So, Rich, you have a direct sales team. You have your channel team that's uh, going out. From a management perspective, is there any advice or insights you can give to leaders that are in your position where they're, they're managing the direct and the indirect? Any insights you can provide on, on ways or lessons learned that you've had, but just ways to best manage, um, to, to, to manage those two buckets? Yeah, you know, they're certainly they're different, right? Now, you know, I think about some things I've seen in your book and other research that I've done, of course, and, and it's, it's interesting to be able to kind of move back and forth between managing direct and indirect at the same time. Um, but I would say lessons learned, um, you know, help your people to understand the direct folks that it's, I, I try to help them understand what role they play within the channel. Because, you know, in my role, uh, my team that is, the direct folks I have are selling to the same 
size organizations in this case that our channel teams are. And so what we're trying to do is help our individuals understand where they fit in so that they can focus specifically on what's the best part of the market for them while not running into so much channel comp, uh, channel interference that they end up you know, getting frustrated by that. So I make sure that both sides of that coin understand what their, what their, uh, their roles are and try to keep those as separate as I can, understanding that there's never a way to keep those 100% differentiated. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And uh, I would say only every client that I talk to that is managing both a direct and indirect have this channel interference or channel conflict um, right. you know, that uh, is a, a challenge for them from time to time. And uh, it definitely is, you know, it can be a problem. It can be a challenge, but that's, that's also, it's a part of knowing that I guess it's good in, in one respect, because it means that your people are getting out there. <laughs> they're getting out there. They're mm. getting seen, and uh, you know they're they're hopefully getting that target. But are there any other are there any insights that uh, you could provide, especially as you you know launched this program not too long ago? Any quick lessons learned on the you know the the channel conflict piece or that interference that you might uh, you know share with some of your peers as to how they can address that. Well, I can speak for the for what we've done in our organization specifically, which is that while there is channel uh, tension, I wouldn't call it channel conflict. And what I mean by that is that uh, while in my team in the SMB, the, the, for us, the smaller size companies that we sell to, there is a bit more of that overlap between the direct team and our channel team. But that being said, overall, you know, we also have a direct sales force that works on Global 2000 accounts. And so what we've done is, is we've ensured that we carve out parts of the market where we do not have a, a strong investment made already. So for example, I don't have a channel that sells the same global 2000 accounts because that would create a lot of confusion in the market. So we're trying to, you know, not only do we want to reduce channel conflict between sales teams, but also we want to try to make sure that the market understands and is not confused by how we go to market. So it's not like, Hey, I can buy this, you know, the same product from five different organizations. And so we do make sure that we look for the areas where, our channel can help us where we're not as strong or likely to want to invest in. Um, and so that's where most of the channel work happens, right? And that helps us to grow revenue without actually having much of that conflict. Again, impossible to minimize or to completely minimize or eliminate that, but at least you can manage it in a way that keeps both sides relatively happy. Yeah. Rich, before we, uh, before we hit the record button, you and I were chatting a little bit about uh, just some different topics that's, that's in uh, the, you know, the partneronomics book. And one of those is, uh, you know, sometimes in organizations, we think that partnering always has to be about revenue generation or only about revenue generation. And there are other opportunities uh, for us to partner. And we call those, you know, operational excellence or ways to essentially just become more efficient, to be, to push some costs out of the business itself. I'd love for you to just expand on that a little bit, maybe some points that, that you pulled in or what that meant to you. Yeah, no, it's it's great. I'm I'm happy to talk about that because it's actually when I when I came back to the to the alliances partnerships channel, whatever we want to, we want to call it on this point, uh, about two and a half years ago, I started out actually really focusing on the operational excellence side. So if I go back to this point about integrations, where you know organizations will come to us and again they'll say, hey, we love your leadership development, but we have what's called a learning management system, and we want to access your content through that system, and so. What, what I was doing at first was trying to ensure that we were integrated not only with the systems that our clients were having now, but also trying to figure out where were our clients are going to be in 12, 18, 36 months so that when they got there, we'd be, we'd be there waiting for them. And so you know, those aren't revenue producing opportunities. Those are, 
those are operational excellence opportunities where, again, if a client knows that we're ahead of the game, we're waiting for them when they get there, that it feels as though that, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're a contemporary organization that has their best needs in mind versus our own. And so I spent the first year and a half, two years of, of what I'm doing now, really focusing on those to, to try to shore that up. It's just in the last year that I've moved over to the channel side. But one of the things that it was critical as I started to transition from the operational excellence into more of the channel resale side was helping the organization that I work for understand the difference between the two. Because it can feel like, hey, there's this giant bucket called partnerships and everything falls in that bucket. And it feels like they're all the same. And if you're in a company that hasn't had the culture of partnership for a long time, then you have to really spend your time to, to focus internally. Like I've learned... I knew this 20 years ago and I, and I relearned it, of course, in the last couple of years that you need to spend probably more time in, inside your organization with your stakeholders, right? Managing their expectations than you do with the people you're working with outside your company sometimes. And so it was a lot of time spent. And again, I, you know, I use the model that you mentioned with the, the biz dev versus operational excellence. I use that, that model to help senior leadership where I am understand the difference between the two so that we could figure out how to resource best and then grow that part of our revenue. So it was a hugely helpful model. But it's so true. Um, spending time internally, just making sure that we're internally aligned, you know, top and bottom of, of what we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it, what the finish line looks like. And, and probably most important is just setting the expectation of time and resources of, of when it's going to, to take to get there. But yeah, as we're working with our, our partnering counterparts, they, they kind of understand the drill. <laughs> they're, they're partnering people as well. But sometimes, yeah. you know, we're, we're working with other folks that uh, haven't necessarily been in our seats. So we, we've got to spend time uh, working there as well. So it's, it's good that you point that out. Um, I would like to, to chat a little bit, Rich. I know you've, you know, been a professional for a number of years in negotiating contracts. I wanna hit negotiating contracts with you and just talk a little bit about some of those success practices. Um, what's maybe some advice that you would, you would give somebody when it comes, because a lot of times whenever we think about negotiating, we think about you know, the dark room and, and we think about uh, the spotlights being on us and it's, it's about this kind of tit for tat thing. But just conceptually, I just how do you approach negotiating? And then would you also see that a part of negotiating is the written agreement itself and the importance of putting together strong contracts? Yeah, for sure. It's um, we published a book at Harvard uh, Business Publishing a bunch of years ago by an author named Danny Rattel. And um, the, 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 the headline of that book, not the title, but the headline was um, uh, negotiating as if implementation mattered. And so for me, when I think about working with our partners, that's probably the most critical thing is to understand that for all the work you do to get to what feels like the finish line, to get the, that partnership signed. And, uh, and as a direct sales guy, trust me, there is a part of me that always says, I need to run as fast as I can to get that thing signed. And then suddenly let's, you know, let's raise the flag that we've won. Well, you know, in this world, it's what happens after the signature. That's what really matters, right? And yes, you have to do the things ahead of time, but if you've done the right work again with your internal stakeholders to get them prepared for what's about to happen after, then you're in a much better position. So first off, I'll just say that for me, again, it's, it's about what happens beyond the signature. But to your point about getting to that signature, uh, yeah, it's critical to understand going in, what is, it, what is it that you really need from that? And what is it that you can bring to value for your partners? And so if you've done your due diligence and you've had your conversations beyond the due diligence, then you should have a really good sense, I think, of 
you know, how, how do you provide that mutual value? And then it's easier to get to those points in, of trust where you can work some of those details out. If you're hiding things from one another, you're trying to, you know, to, to win and to, to beat someone down, you're never going to, you, know, you may win, quote unquote, your negotiation on the paper, paperwork side. But when it comes to implementation later on, you're going to have stakeholders on the other side who are going to who are going to probably revolt against the deal because ultimately you've not asked for their inputs and you've tried to beat them in a way that they can't actually produce in the deal. So, look, you know, we we for us our ethos at Harvard is to is to treat our partners very well, and we expect the same in return, of course. And by doing that, it means we are transparent and trust building throughout the entire process. Yeah, if we treat uh, our negotiations, our partner negotiations, like a like a hostage situation, we might <laughs> we might win the battle, but we're going to lose the war, right? Because we're 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 okay. asking to go to war with whoever our partner is, and it's it's that long term relationship is where both uh, sides get the value out of it. But uh, Rich, you bring up a great point, and that is that the handoff that happens a lot of times. I mean, we definitely say the finish line is not the the signed deal but it's really yeah. extracting value from the deal, from that relationship. And depending on how companies are organized, a lot of times what they'll do is, is have a team or a person that will do the deal, quote unquote, right? They do the deal and they get it to the finish line. They get it signed, but then we hand the baton off to, to other folks that then go in and implement. You know, you definitely mm. alluded to this, but I'd like for you just to talk a little bit more about the importance of, um, connecting and getting that implementation team or teams, those people, you know, because it's all about relationships, the importance of having those people also have a seat at the table um, to, to get those relationships going because they're the ones that have to raise the baby, so to speak. Mm. So true, you know, and, and again, it, it sometimes goes against what I feel like are my direct sales sensibilities. Because again, you just want to get, you know, you want to get to the point of signature and, and you want to feel like, like I said, you can celebrate. But you know, I've learned, of course, that you need to get those other, uh, those other individuals in early. And it's, it's, it's not just the people who are going to be the leaders of those, of the different parts of the, of the, um, of the deal, but it's the individuals who are doing the work, right? And I, I learned this, I still make these mistakes, trust me, you know, every day I still learn where I should have done this better. But I think about trying to get individuals who have to be there on the ground doing the work, the more of their input that I can get early on, and I don't mean necessarily that I'm giving them the right to veto a deal so much as I'm trying to give them the, the visibility to say, here's how I think we can structure the deal, or here's how I can deliver on that deal for you, or here's how I cannot deliver on that deal for you. The more of that that I know, the more it goes back to your last question about trying to structure some of those um, those T's and C's, if you will, uh, so that we can understand, again, what we can both deliver on to provide value. So I think it's really critical. The more people you can get involved as stakeholders, and again, under, letting them understand as well as you understand who has the right to veto versus who has the authority just to sort of weigh in. Um, and I do that for what it's worth. You know, I have a stakeholder wheel within my organization where I have kind of a, a red, yellow, green of basically saying, you know, the, those who are red are the individuals who are who have veto power, and I'm sure that they are brought in at different stages of the of the of the, the process. Rich, uh, during our conversation here, you've used the culture word a couple different times, so I'm going to ask you to unpack that a little bit. And truly, I mean, there's the, a lot of times I see where senior leaders maybe don't have full appreciation for the partnering culture and how it can truly how it's, it's different. I mean, organizations that are great at partnering are organizations that have a culture that really embraces 
partnerships across the board and they don't see that as as a threat because sometimes some organizations, some teams might see that, especially if you have a direct sales team and then you have a, a channel or this indirect team, sometimes we could see a little bit of competition there. Talk to us a little bit about culture and sometimes what needs to happen to have that culture of partnering. Yeah, that's a really good question. It's sometimes not that easy to answer. For for us, the culture is, it starts with the strategy somewhat. And then I know that, you know, we we published work from Drucker who said once that uh, strategy is what culture eats for breakfast, right? But that aside, you know, we look at the strategy of our organization and we say, what is it we're trying to accomplish? You know, what difference are we trying to make out in the market uh, with our leadership development opportunities? And then we go back and say, how can we best fulfill on that? And so, you know, what I love about our job and partnerships and alliances and channels is that we are, you know, we're, we are strategy people as much as we are fulfilling that strategy as well. And so the opportunity to go out there and, and create some of that thought leadership and strategy for the business um, helps you to get a seat at the table to be able to influence culture in a way that, that makes it easier to, to do our jobs. So I think if you, if you work in a vacuum in partnerships and you don't spend the time to work with your senior level stakeholders, again, just as you would with your junior level stakeholders, as we talked about for implementation, uh, if you don't spend that time, you're, you know, you're likely to, to be lost in that vortex you've just described of people not knowing what you're doing, not getting why you're doing it. So again, it's, it's, it's spending all that due diligence inside the organization from top to bottom at different levels to understand why you're doing this so that people are behind it. In that case, it gets, it's a lot easier to, to get the job done. Awesome. Well, Rich, it's not every day that I get to talk to somebody from Harvard Business Publishing, so I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity and just say I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. I love to dig in. I love to learn, and and you guys are like the pinnacle whenever it comes to to great uh, producers of of all of this research and all of this thought leadership. I'd love to just pick your brain for those of us that are in this world of partnering, and uh, we've chosen this as a profession. What are some different resources that you have or that you've run across that you'd like to recommend that, that people check out to help advance themselves in this career? Uh, so at the, at the risk of sounding like this was set up, I think reading your book actually is a really good model. You know, again, I, you know, before you and I ever met, I've read your book a couple of times. And, I've, and as you know, I've moved, I've used some of the, the, the models from that. So that aside, of course, um, we have published at Harvard Business Publishing some work from uh, number of people, but uh, Ben Gomes Casetas, who is a professor at um, uh, Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. He's got some great research and a couple of good books on that. I recommend him. Um, I'm a member, as many of us are, I'm sure, of ASAP, the Association for Professional Alliances, or Alliances Professionals, sorry. So there's some good stuff in there. Um, I mean, there are, there are lots of resources out there. I, I took an exec ed class at Wharton. I was blessed to be able to go and then learn some, from some great professors at, at Wharton you know, University down in Philadelphia. Um, so, I mean, those are a couple of things, uh, but, you know, I, I find sometimes that you have to dig a little deeper, I think, for, uh, for what we do. And it'd be, it'd be great to have a community where we can go off and, and work with one another to try to help each other with our best practices, because sometimes you feel like you're out there on an island, right? And so, um, so as much as there is thought leadership out there that I've just described, try to find a way to, to work with, uh, to talk to the people who do what we do and set a network with them to, to have a place to go and commiserate if nothing else, right? <laughs> well, I love that, Rich. And that's a, that's a great segue. And I'd like to invite you to, to join into the Partnernomics community uh, that we're building Absolutely. out there in Partnernomics.com. So it'll be fun to, to have your participation in there and, and your thought leadership. Uh, one last question before we let you go. Yeah. Rich, sure. I'd like to ask you to, to speak to your 25-year-old self. 
speak to your 25 year old self and uh, give him some, uh, some, some career advice, some worldly advice of uh, give him some tools that'll help him get more out of his career in life. <laughs> oh man, that was a much different person at 25. <laughs> I think we all were. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, when I was 25 years old, I, uh, you know, I used to, to have an ego that said, hey, I've got some really good ideas. And so because I have good ideas, well, should, everyone should just fall in line and say, these are great ideas, Rich, and, and do something with those, right? Uh, and when I, as I got older, I've learned that that was a big ego play for me and that I don't always have good ideas. But what matters more than good ideas is your ability to implement those ideas. And so I think I would tell my 25-year-old self to worry less about the ideas and more about the ways you can get those great ideas if you have them implemented. And I think a big part of that, like I said before, is networking and creating those relationships inside your organization and outside. And so I would probably tell my 25-year-old self to spend some more time um, building those networks because they'll be so important to you as you, as you move on in your career. So probably what I, would, what I would say today. It's a good question. Yeah, well, that's, that's a great answer. <laughs> well, Rich, <laughs> thank you so much for your time and thanks uh, for what you do um, personally and, and within your business. I mean, you guys are a huge resource for business leaders and, and professionals. So keep up the awesome work and uh, it'll be fun to, to watch what you guys uh, publish and come up with next. Yeah, Mark, back at you. You do great work. Thanks a lot for letting me be on here today and for the stuff you're doing out for our, our industry and for our job as well. It's not always that easy. So thanks again for your time. Partnernomics Podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics Podcast, visit Partnernomics.com. <laughs>